0: I ran my first marathon February of my freshman year of college at a I was wearing Abercrombie reversible basketball shorts, <laughs> and I was wearing old New Balance uh, shoes, actually uh, part of the plastic was sticking out of the heel, and then uh, two cotton shirts. One of them was a Bucks Island Party uh, long sleeve shirt, and so I got to about mile 14, and realized i'd made a horrible horrible mistake i was literally bleeding because i only had the two cotton shirt nobody glad i didn't know what any of that stuff was
1: welcome back to the building better people podcast this is your host charlie lima today i'm gonna interview chris field chris has an awesome fitness story he's ran 21 marathons he actually started the bcs marathon here in bryan college station and mercy project which is doing incredible things you are going to love hearing Chris's just perspective and uh, just thoughts on so many different subjects. You're going to get from this interview; um, it will definitely impact you in a positive way.
0: My name is Chris Field, and I'm married to my wife, Stacy. We have three kids: seven, five, two, and then a baby on the way, so October. So I am, my day job is the CEO of a nonprofit called Mercy Project, where we're doing economic development in West Africa to rescue children from slavery, and I dabble in uh, several other things. I have a small business that does social media for other small businesses, recently wrote a book on the topic of disruption, uh, do a little bit of real estate investment, so try to Uh, fill my extra time with things that i enjoy doing
1: man so we i mean we could play off of everything you just said on this podcast and i do want to pick apart some of that because before we get into your fitness journey chris i've known you for a long time um close friends and let's talk first about your family man 752 and another one coming so yeah i just joined the three kid club Yep. And can firsthand speak <laughs> on that, um, but I know that you guys are excited, and yeah. uh, it's so is it a boy or girl? It's a little boy. A little boy, so you'll have two and two?
0: Yeah, it's actually, it'll be daughter is the oldest, oh. and then three oh, little three boys. Bo- man, yeah. three
1: little boys. Yeah. I told Alicia, just be ready when they get older because yeah. our sons now are two years apart. And I was like, you have not seen violence <laughs> yeah. or uh, just bullying, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's all good because I told somebody the other day, my older brother was my best man at my wedding, oh, yeah. even though he probably beat me up more yeah. than anybody. Yeah, it's fun. Um, yeah. So cool, man. And so Stacy, and you've been married how long?
0: We've been married 12 and a half years. So we were 22 and 20 when we got married. So actually, high school sweethearts fell in love pretty hard. Didn't know how to handle that, so we broke up for probably a year and a half, two years, and then went back together in college. Actually, I transferred from Texas A&M to Abilene Christian, where I finished my um, undergrad in ministry, and right before I went to ACU, which is where Stacy was, she heard I was coming, and we weren't talking at the time, and she, I had a girlfriend, and Stacy came to me and said, this is not characteristic of her at all she's very gentle and soft-spoken but she walked up and said I heard you're coming to ACU and I said yes I am I'll be there in a month and she said well when you and your little girlfriend break up don't come running back to me (laughs) and five months later we were dating again and 12 months later we were engaged wow I did come running back to her but she did not uh, rejected. <laughs> as she so boldly uh, said that she would. Oh,
1: so. uh, well, that's awesome. I know you guys support each other so well. Yeah, it's and, been fun. Um, so tell me about Mercy Project. When you started it, kind of give me a little bit more about that organization, because I know you guys are doing incredible things.
0: Yeah, so it was almost seven years ago. So September 1st, 2010, I quit my job as a pastor at a church in Dallas and launched Mercy Project officially. I had been to Ghana uh, late two thousand nine. I had been. I'd read a book about child trafficking, and they told the story of some of the kids in Ghana that worked on the in the fishing industry. And I was really captivated by that story. We were pregnant with our first child, and just to consider as we were praying over this baby that we were going to have and be parents of and we already knew we were going to name her micah and we'd already been praying micah 6 8 over her life and over stacy just that our daughter micah would be a woman of justice and mercy in her life and so the contrast of praying that prayer for our unborn child and then to know that there were kids in the world who were sold into slavery and trafficked into the fishing industry that contrast just felt overwhelming. and so i I googled the author of that book and found her phone number and called her and asked her if I could go to Ghana with her, and went in August of two thousand and nine and just fell in love with the the kids and and really just had my heart broken for that. I mean, just to, I mean, still even it's been almost eight years to to think about those first few moments of, of holding hands of these little kids and knowing that for 20 or $30 that they'd been sold to someone because they were from families who had no money and the fishermen who owned them um, needed little hands to do the fishing. It was just it's a terrible, terrible story. And so I came back from that trip, still was pastoring in church in Dallas and thought our role was going to be to um, raise money which is a pretty classic sort of response to, to needs and certainly necessary. So we raised a lot of money. We had a lot of success raising money. The, about nine months, we raised about $75,000 and handed it over to another organization. And, but along that same path of those nine months, what, what kind of happened concurrently to the fundraising was we realized no one was getting at the root causes of this problem. There was a lot of sort of well-intentioned response to the trafficking but no one was really getting at what was primarily economic issue and so kind of put us at this crossroads do we just say hey we did we did what we could you know we man $75,000 that's more than most people and just kind of go on with our lives or do we kind of roll our sleeves up and figure out a way to do this in a a way that gets at the the root causes and obviously we chose the, the second of those and Knowing it was going to be a hard, hard road, and it has been. I mean, it's a. We've essentially. I, I joke, but it's not a joke. We've we've chosen the most expensive, most difficult, um, hardest possible way to try to end child trafficking in hmm. Ghana, um, because we're essentially we're trying to disrupt a multi-generational cycle, and we're trying to change a culture that has accepted children as slaves for forty or fifty years and so uh, that's it. doesn't happen in one month, it doesn't happen in one year, it doesn't happen even in ten years I mean we're seven years into this and still grinding every single day to, to change the culture so essentially um, just so you don't have to ask the follow-up question what we're doing we're teaching these villages who own the children so children come from very poor families who typically feel desperate, unable to feed their kids. Kids aren't able to go to school uh, because there's some, school is technically free, but there's costs associated like books and um, having to have a uniform. And so the parents are just watching their kid basically sit on the floor of their um, little dirt hut and thinking, man, my child has no future. And uh, there's sort of this cultural understanding that if you send your child to the lake, someone will give you some small cash, as they like to say, and that your child will at least learn a skill. They'll at least know how to fish and they'll have food because they can eat some of the small fish. And so there's seven to 10,000 of these little kids, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, that work 12, 14 hours a day fishing. Actually, the kind of uh, Physically, their bodies look like what your CrossFitters would want their bodies to look like because they're um, abnormally developed at their age because their muscles are so, so strong. So what we've done is gone into these communities that own these children and we engage them in a partnership. Now, this is a long process that I'll summarize briefly, but uh, we uh, essentially, our Ghanaian staff goes in and, we take a census of the community where we kind of understand their economic needs and ask questions to understand how many families do they have, what's their family structure, and this begins to help paint the picture of how many traffic kids there are in a in a non-threatening way. We're not bursting in and asking. There's no no Americans that are part of this. It's our fully biocanadian staff, and so once our once we begin to understand, okay, this community has eight or ten or twelve traffic kids. Uh, which happens over several months that we do this census and begin the relationship. We begin talking to the community leaders, the chief, the elders about, uh, hey, you know, there's a better way to fish. Uh, have you guys heard of this cage fishing, growing fish in cages instead of doing the, the physical labor? And typically they've heard of it. And so this kind of begins this conversation where we say, hey, we, we know a better way of fishing. It's We're experts in this better way of fishing. Is this something you'd be interested in partnering? And of course, they're typically very excited about that opportunity. And that's when we kind of come back around and say, uh, we're looking for partners, but our goal is to help children be able to attend school. So we want your own children to be able to go to school, and we want kids who don't live in this community. Maybe they're from another place. To be able to go back to that place and go to school in that place and so then that's the gentle sort of entry point for us to start having conversations um sometimes they're pretty frank and they say oh yeah we have some kids like that here and sometimes they say oh we don't have any kids like that here and we say well that's interesting because we've done a census of your community and we have 12 kids on a list that we know their moms and dads don't live here and then they're like oh wow. those kids um and so then we we bring in the cages, uh, we teach them how to do the fishing, which replaces their need for the, the children. And then we begin investigating to figure out where those kids came from to find their parents, uh, which is sometimes easy. Sometimes the traffickers will have the parents' phone number in their phone, you know, because they'll, they'll have talked to them. And sometimes, like a little boy that we're working with now, um, we're having trouble finding his parents. He's the first kid out of almost a hundred that. Uh, so,
1: how did y'all come to that solution of the cages? Was yeah. that an idea that somebody there told you? No, it was
0: it was my idea. I mean, essentially, we knew it was an economic issue, and so we ran through all these ran through all these different possibilities, right? Like, okay, maybe they could make soap or you see jewelry as a popular thing, or maybe we could bring in chickens and they could begin poultry farming or, you know, agriculture with maize or uh, cassava, which is a tuber that they grow there. But what we kept coming back to, this is a very uneducated people, very unsophisticated. I mean most of the people in the villages have a first or second grade education. And so to introduce a completely new business to people who are six or seven years old in an American standard of understanding, high likelihood of failure, right? I mean, essentially, we're asking them to understand something that that they have no context or comprehension for understanding. So just sort of... It was one particular board member and myself. One day we were talking about this, and, and we just said... We're overthinking this. What do they know? What do they know how to do? They know how to fish. They understand fish. They know how to harvest fish. They know how to, you know, take care of fish. They know how to smoke fish or salt fish. They know how to sell fish at the market. Like, this is what they do is they fish. So what if we just gave them a better way to fish so that they could be more efficient? Because it's really an efficiency issue um, than than a product issue. I mean, Ghana still is they don't have enough fish to fill the need of fish in the country. They're, they're importing frozen fish in from Brazil because there's not enough fish being caught fresh.
1: So this was honestly, you probably did them a favor by creating a a better way to do this.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the, the win win for them is that you don't have to work as hard and you make more money more consistently. And the win for us is we want the kids to be able to go. So, how many home. total
1: kids have you guys uh, got out of there?
0: We're at eighty-nine kids, That's awesome, and man. so by the end of two thousand seventeen, we'll be over a hundred kids. That's awesome. Six partner villages, um, and we'll do hopefully number seven and number eight.
1: This well, year. I know, I know it. Uh, it has to exhaust you and Stacy and your whole team uh, in several ways. But what an incredible just. Purpose and um, I know your heart for sure is uh, just completely in the right place when it comes yeah, to that, that because was... you wouldn't do, you wouldn't do what you do if it wasn't yeah you know? yeah I think you'd uh, quit a long time ago yeah I think
0: that you I've you tell people if you knew how hard something was going to be you might you might not have done it and I think in retrospect I don't know if I would have had the guts to to do this but I think God gives us the enough. Of what's in front of us he lets us see enough to know that this is good and right and and gives us the strength that, that we need Amen. so really the job has gotten easier for me because I've been able to build a team but I've been to Ghana over 30 times in the last 7 years in those first couple of years it was every 6 weeks because I didn't have any Ghanaian staff it was just me so now one of our goals actually from the beginning was to have more Ghanaian staff than American and we've far surpassed that i think we're up to 12 or 13 ghanaian staff um opposed to five or six americans so the next goal is to in that space the next goal is to actually hire one of our formerly trafficked kids to work
1: for oh the that'd be Project. great
0: so we're getting some kids that are been in the program now five years and so some of them that were 11 or 12 are getting into high school and getting close to being yeah. able to uh, get out and work for us so
1: well you know i think this segues a little bit into bcs marathon mm-hmm. because that's kind of how i met yeah. you and how i learned about mercy project was from the first bcs marathon right. which kind of segues into your fitness journey yeah because you're a runner yeah how long have you been a runner
0: i ran my first marathon on a lark because i liked a girl who was running a marathon in i was 19 so it was my february of my freshman year of college at a and m there was a girl that I liked, and she was running the Austin Marathon. And so I went up there with her and her mom to kind of cheer her on and decided I'd run a few miles with her. And I distinctly remember, this was, remember, 2001, 2002. It just turned 2002, February 2002. So your, your listeners are going to have to give me some grace here, but anyone around our age is going to appreciate this. I had I was wearing Abercrombie reversible basketball shorts. <laughs> And I was wearing old New Balance uh, shoes, actually uh, part of the plastic was sticking out of the heel. And then uh, two cotton shirts, one of them was a Bucks Island Party uh, long sleeve shirt. And so I was gonna run the first couple miles with her and I did, and then I felt okay. And so I kept running a few more miles and got to probably mile eight. And Austin Marathon is pretty hilly. I mean, it's a tougher course. And, and all of our friends were meeting us at the at the halfway mark, and so I, I felt okay, but I thought maybe really cool to run a half marathon. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna gut this out and keep going. She was running about 10 minute pace. So I made it all the way to the the half, which was shocking to me and to all my In friends. jeans? Uh, no, no uh, Abercrombie reversible basketball shorts. Oh, basketball sh- oh, shorts. Basketball yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. But not running shorts okay. for sure. <laughs> Um, and I get to the halfway and my friends, there's probably five or six of them there and their faces, they're shocked. And in a moment of just sheer idiocy, I'm like, I'm doing the whole thing. I just, I'm doing the whole thing. <laughs> I'm going for it. And so I got to about mile 14 and realized I'd made a horrible, horrible mistake. That's not how any of this works. And... She kept going, my friends, and that started the death march for me. So 12 miles, I walked and ran and finished five hours, 10 minutes. I was literally bleeding because I only had the two cotton shirts. Yep. No body glide. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. But I was hooked. Uh, My dad was a marathoner, very pretty successful marathoner, lifetime PR of 317. Wow. And so I remember calling him from the hotel in Austin and saying, I ran a marathon today. And he was like, oh, what? And so the next November, he and I trained and ran the New York City Marathon together. Did you run in high cool. school, no, track, nothing? No, no, no running. Were uh, you into baseball. weightlifting? Yeah, played baseball. Yeah. And I was, I was on the more muscular side, I guess. I mean, I was probably 5'10", 180 when I graduated high school with, um, you know, I was not relative to your listeners who are serious weightlifters, a lot of them. But I mean I was benching like 220 or something in high school. So I was stronger than I was fast for sure. Yeah. Um, but I really loved the running and around that same time I got the I got a job as a camp director of a camp for inner city kids outside Austin, which I was doing while I was in college. It's a really stressful job. And running just kind of became my refuge of some of my best ideas and my best prayer time and kind of my time to pull away you know as a full-time student and doing this pretty significant job and it was kind of this my 30 or 45
1: or 60 so minutes I, I do want you to expand on that because yeah. i feel the exact same way yeah and i think that if you don't if you don't run, you don't yeah. experience
0: that. Especially, if, or if you run and you hate it. Yes. Right? The, yeah. You, you your never experiences gem so, class. So, in high give.
1: School. You know, maybe the listener, or, you know, doesn't even know what you're talking about yeah. when you say that. So, like when you say a run, you come up with some of your best ideas. It's prayer time. It's yeah. elaborate a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think especially now. I mean, that you know, the season of life I'm in now. It's pretty much outside of sleeping. It's the only. Chris Field time—it's only me time that I have every day, and so for me, what running has become is this really sacred space. Uh, one of my professors in seminary would call it a thin, one of thin spaces in life between heaven and earth. And for me, it—it's this time every day where I run six days a week, and it's this time every day where I, certainly I've got things that are frustrating or difficult or um, all of that but it, it becomes this it's become this sort of reflective time for me without all the other distractions to be able to work through problems and opportunities in ways that I don't have the time and the space when I'm sitting in front of a computer or when I'm competing I don't even take my phone on runs I mean I have a watch, a GPS watch, and that's it. I mean, I don't even take water unless I'm running over 10 miles. And so, like, I am completely unencumbered. My watch automatically does its thing every mile. It auto laps, and so I'm not looking at my watch on most easy runs. I'm just running. And so when that happens, just like the way you drive home from work and sometimes you realize you got home and you didn't even – you don't remember driving home from work because it's Mm -hmm. so automatic, when running becomes that automatic – your brain and you don't have any other distractions all of a sudden this it's like space opens up in your brain that you don't have any other time and so what I find myself doing a lot is really being able to marinate on one or two or three critical things and and sometimes it's sort of asking the Lord like hey why is this person frustrating me so much like what is my role in this relationship that's causing this friction or why or stacy and i having a hard time communicating on this particular issue right now or why am i being so impatient as a parent or like in the case of needing to hire a new employee for one of my for mercy projects it's like uh, being able to really think through what do i need this person to be doing what qualities should they have what characteristics and then those people start to pop into my mind hey i wonder if this person or i wonder if this person might be able to help answer some questions or whatever. So I just, I think there's a, a depth. I, I love a quote from Dallas Willard that I used a lot when I was in church that um, our churches are a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think a lot of us, if we're really honest, our lives are a mile wide, and the, but they're an inch deep. Um, and it's because our culture at this point is, is asking us to do so much, and there's so many distractions that we become jack of all trades and master of none. And and m- much of that comes in that we're we're touching good things, but we're not giving ourselves the space to go deep on those good things, or to even know if they're good things because we never get past the first inch of the of the dirt. And so, I think what running has done it's it's removed those other. Distractions, so that I can have the depth that my life so desperately needs.
1: And you're getting it six days a week. Yeah. So it's not it's not once a week or one you know every now and then. So tell me if if I'm a runner who gets exhausted at ten minutes or you know four hundred meters, you know half a mile, whatever. At what point? Do I start getting to this thin space that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a lot of like psych, psychological theory out there on these kind of things. I mean, some would call it like there's a word, there's a phrase called flow, like getting into flow, and there's a lot of theory around workflow and all of that. But I think the, for my first advice for somebody who just does not like running, which would be my wife, the first thing is you've got to slow down. Uh, it's one of the number one mistakes that runners, even serious runners make, is that they run too fast on their easy days so I tell people all the time if running is miserable for you, it's because you're going too fast for your fitness level so I've been running 15 years now, I've run 21 marathons, so cumulatively I've probably done 10,000 miles or something right, I mean a lot of time And, and I'm I mean, I ran a 5K a couple of days ago, under 20 minutes. You know, I'm I'm relatively fast for uh, a casual weekend runner, and still, my easy days are 8:45 or 9 minute pace. I know people that can't finish within five minutes of me in a 5K. That run faster than that on their easy runs. Well, it's not an easy run when when you're running that fast, and so. That's the first thing I tell people. Uh, and maybe that means you're going to have to walk a little bit at the beginning, running, doing some running and walking. But the first thing is just to, to slow down. Shouldn't feel miserable. One or two workouts a week should feel like you're redlining, and the rest should be uh, comfortable, pace. You should be able to have a conversation. You should be able to speak. So I think that's the first. Piece is that if you're running so fast you feel like your brain is about to fall out, then no, you're not going to get into the flow. And in all my hard workouts, there's not nearly as much prayer time when I'm doing, you know, 800 meter intervals all out. I got to chime
1: in because it's funny. Yeah. I, I will often tell people, um, and now I'm understanding why, because you're talking about thin space, you're talking about slow down to here. And I always tell people when I go run, for me, it's, it's a very spiritual. Absolutely. Therapeutic experience. Um, I love it. Yeah. Uh, And I often hear God speak in that time where I have incredible fellowship with Him. Right. But I say, not so much. In CrossFit, yeah, yeah totally. Different. Yeah, it's a totally. And now different I understand what yeah. you're saying. That makes total sense because my heart rate so. Yeah, j- the I tell people I'm just, just thinking different. about breathing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't hear anything. Falling over, right? But keep going. I just yeah, so
0: I think that's the first thing is to slow down. I think the second thing is we have created a culture that expects to we we want things to come so quickly to us, and you know this. I mean, I the number of people have probably come to you and I'm working with someone right now, a close friend who's trying to undo 18 years of poor eating. And I'm just sort of functioning as a a, a accountability friend, kind of daily reaching out and and encouraging um, them to stay on the path that they're on. And, and I say it probably once a week, I remind this person, we're trying to take 18 years of, poor choices and we're trying to fix them even if we fix them in two years it's a one to nine payback right and that's that would be incredible if we could undo 18 years of poor choices in just two years that would be amazing and it's the same way I think with running or with CrossFit that um, our culture has sort of teased us that we should be able to get whatever we want as fast as we want I mean we're, we're we complain that our internet's not fast enough because it takes 30 seconds to download a video instead of instantaneous, uh, which, you know, when I was a teenager and using dial-up, I would have never imagined in my life that, that we'd be able to stream television and movies and stuff, but we've become so conditioned to that. So I think if you want running to become a thin space, expect that to be a bit of a journey f- for you, just like any other part of your um spiritual disciplines you don't decide to fast and fast for 40 days Um, typically you know Richard Foster uh, who's kind of the guru of spiritual disciplines he you know would say you may start out with just missing one meal and see how that feels and see what that does to your body and see what thinking about hunger does to being more intentional about prayer but you don't just go from hey, I want to try fasting as a spiritual discipline and all of a sudden you're fasting for days. Uh, you you sort of dip your toe in the water on that. And I think running, particularly running in a way that you get in the flow, it takes years to get to that point. And so I think you'll have moments of it if you're running slow enough. You'll have moments and you can kind of feel that and the, the endorphins and that you just feel good about yourself, feel good about... I worked my body hard today. I think that's the other thing. Culturally, we become so lazy. We don't work with our hands anymore. We don't till the fields. We don't harvest. Uh, I actually read a fascinating um, book about technology, and the guy said, "I really love this. It made me think." He said, "Our children watch us working on computers, and they don't actually think we're good at anything hmm. because they don't. They think we're playing." So in the old days, our kids could watch us build tables and they could watch us put on a roof and they could watch us uh, go harvest the corn and they could say, I see my dad working and he adds value to my family. Now our kids see us on the computer and think, oh, my dad plays. Hmm. So our kids, in some ways, they don't, they don't even understand what our value add is to the world. So then we ask them to add value to the world, and they're like, Well, they subconsciously, like, well, What value are you adding to the world? You just sit on your computer all day, right? So that's a fascinating sort of wow. thing to think about. But I think in the same way, we have to train ourselves um, to, to work hard, and that it feels good to work hard. It hurts, but it feels good to hurt, and it feels good to, to push ourselves. And, uh, you know, running has taught me more than anything else. What running and pursuing goals has taught me is that persistence wins the race. And I I love hiring marathoners to work for me because they understand small goals to reach big goals. Like, no, you set out an 18-week training plan in front of a runner, and they've got five runs a week, 18 weeks, 90 runs. They have 90 workouts, to reach a goal at the end and every day they wake up and they bite off one of those 90 workouts and some will go well and some will be harder and most will be fine but they got to wake up and punch that card every day for 90 days 90 workouts and then they go and run this race and if you if, if we did that with any topic if we took wanting to read scripture more if we took wanting to invest our money better, if we took wanting to be better husbands or better parents or anything, even starting a business, if we woke Mm -hmm. up every day with a business idea and spent one hour on it, and then tabled it till the next day, and then one hour on it, and one hour on it, one hour on it, it, culminating in this big moment at the end, it would be unstoppable what we would be able to do as people. But we typically, we don't have the discipline for that, and
1: um, so people and need hard. to basically commit to the journey. Yeah, I mean, bef- this is
0: my my. So in the book that I wrote, uh, I, I, it's a book about disruption, and I'm basically proposing that we we all we tend to think of disruption as a negative, and really disruption is a neutral. It's it's changing the path of something, and it can be negative, but it can also be positive. And I give a sort of a, a working. Plan at the end to say, look, it's you. I, I tell all these stories of disruptors, and I, these are really fascinating stories of people who've just done incredible things. People you've never heard of. Which I thought first I was going to find famous people to fill the book with uh, that have been disruptive, but then I realized there's no fun in that. Let's find people no one's ever heard of, and then that takes away the excuse of well, they're so rich, or well, they're they went to Harvard, or well, they X Y Z. You know, they're just. Athletically gifted. Like, no, let's cut away all that and just these people that shop next to you at HEB and they drive next to you on Texas Avenue and they work out with you at CrossFit. Some of those people are doing incredibly disruptive things that's changing the world because they made the decision to do incredibly disruptive things that change the world. But at the end of that, the book, I give a a process called The Map of Disruption M A P. M is make a commitment. The a is an action plan and then p is persistence and it's really not that complex hmm. uh, you make a commitment that there's something in your life you're uncomfortable with so for in your space it would be someone saying you know I'm unhealthy I'm not gonna live to uh, be able to play with my grandkids or even just I'm I'm you know the term I think would in 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 your world would be like skinny fat somebody it's like I'm not overweight I'm not obese but I'm not healthy right I I uh, have great metabolism, so maybe on my weight on a scale isn't bad, but I can do 10 push-ups if mm-hmm. I had to. And I don't know what it means to push myself. I have no idea. So some, Whatever that thing is, making making a commitment, some truth you're uncomfortable with. And this could be, Charlie, this could be as small as something like, I don't like the way I speak to my kids when I get frustrated, something as like day-to-day as that, or I want to make a million dollars so that I can invest in this thing and be able to use my time doing these other things that feel most meaningful to me. I mean, that's a broad spectrum, right? And most people, it's going to be stuff that falls in the middle. And, and truthfully, all of us probably have six or eight, ten truths at any time that we're uncomfortable with. Um, and so it's choo- making, choosing one of those, and we commit, I'm not okay with this thing. I'm not okay with this part of my life anymore. And then you create an action plan, which is as simple as it sounds. It's taking that commitment and saying, what needs to happen for me to stop this thing or for me to start this thing? So for somebody who wants to be more fit on an action plan, would be something like eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. um, Work out three times a week. Invite people into helping me be accountable with my choices. Um don't have bread on my hamburgers, you know, whatever that thing is a lot. It probably shouldn't focus on just a scale because that's a means to an end. That's saying a finish line where this is sort of saying how you're going to actually take the steps to get to the finish line. And then the last one, which is by far the most important every January 1st, millions of people make commitments. Some of those people make action plans. The differentiator is the ones who persist and every disruptor that i found the key component in their success was that they persisted and if you look at really anyone who's had success i know we look at guys who play in nba or guys who play football even for a m or even some of your um, crossfit some of your top folks in crossfit or for me some of the best runners in the world It's easy to look at those people and think, man, um, must be nice. You know, must be be so nice to, to be that good or to have that much wealth or to be that great of a preacher or to be that wonderful of a husband. And what we gloss over is that none of those people became that when they woke up one day. They made a decision to be that, and then they persisted along the along mm-hmm. the way. And there were days that they were terrible at that and there were days that, that they did it really well but they woke up every day and decided to persist that it, it mattered enough to them that it would get the time and energy and, mm-hmm. and focus um, to be able to do that. I and think so that
1: I, is such a I mean that characteristic like you said it applies to any person absolutely. who wants to But especially people who want to start working out absolutely. or running or getting yeah. healthy and Um, you know, another word you could use there is grit, you know, because it's uh, our uh, pastor who we had on the podcast a few months ago did a whole series or a sermon on grit over quit, yeah. And I thought, man, and he said, you know, the one characteristic consistent with all successful people, and he got it out of a book, he kind of referenced it is that they had grit, you know, above all other traits, characteristics, which persistence same.
0: Yeah. And I like to use the phrase, uh, persistence over perfection.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, we, well, your first marathon, I I imagine looked completely different than the most recent one.
0: Yeah. And even still in races, um, I don't run perfectly, you know, I'll, I'll get lazy on a mile or, or lose focus and I'll lose a few seconds on my splits or whatever. But I wake up the next day and I run again and I wake up the next day and I run again and I'll have a bad race or I'll be disappointed about something or I'll mentally... At this point in my running, it's not a... I know physically I can run marathons. I'm much more in the space of can I keep mental focus for 26 miles? Can I work through the pain of... Being my best and not just finishing and being satisfied with finishing. So, take
1: me from that first. You said we've ran 21 marathons. Yeah. I know you've done a 50 mile race
0: mm-hmm.
1: as well. Yeah, 50 miler and a 37 miler. Okay, so yeah, so go me. Take me from two thousand two, Abercrombie, yeah. New Balance, yeah, uh into present runner Chris, who's probably got the most sophisticated watch, shoes, yeah. gear, you know, you probably know exactly what to do. Yeah. And it's if you could evolution. go tell that first you know 19 year old Chris a few things yes. before he went out for that run.
0: Yes. So the first thing I would say is do not run a marathon without training. It's a <laughs> terrible terrible idea. But, but take
1: I, me through those 21 marathons yeah. and all these and kind of give me a little bit of a history in that Yeah, I think journey. the
0: journey probably much like your fitness journey has been intermittent depending on the season of life that I've been in um, the first several years when I was still in college you know I was running probably 25 or 30 miles a week, and I would do a few long runs, you know, 18, 20 miles before a marathon, and then I would go run a, you know, four-hour marathon, and and that was fine for the season of life I was in, um, you know, as a full-time student and working almost full-time, and so that was just kind of functionally. I liked running enough, and I, and I liked having goals. I'm very, very goal-oriented, and so then I got out of college and started doing ministry and, I, and actually in one of my ministry jobs I was probably borderline um, depressed and feeling really unfulfilled in my work and that was the season. it was the only season of the last 15 that I've been inconsistent with my running and I, I actually one of my signs for knowing I was probably feeling some minimal kind of borderline depression never diagnosed uh, but I'm sure that that I was on the line was that I didn't even feel like running, um, that I, I would rather sleep than, than run. And, and so that season, I didn't run as much. And then, of course, as we started having kids, and I started Mercy Project, and then I started the marathon, and then we had more kids, and then we adopted a little boy, and then we reunited him back into his family. And just the last seven years, I've run, and I've run marathons, typically a marathon or two a year, But there's been years where it's just like, I'm just going to go finish a marathon. And then probably two years ago, I started to get back into a place just mentally and emotionally and with my time again that I was like, hey, I, I was probably 31 or 32 and I knew I didn't have a ton more years of the amount of testosterone I needed to be able to to do my best uh, that you're all of a sudden when I got into my forties, I was going to need to adjust my standards and, and um, a lot of runners that are lifelong runners talk about having PRs for each decade of life just to fairly be able to, to do that. And I thought, you know, I've given a lot to running, but I've never given my, I've never given everything. Like I've never just gone for it. And so I hired a coach, even though I could, I coach people, Casual kind of recreational runners, and I've read a dozen running books, and I could quote everything and need to be quoted. But I needed some accountability and sort of a fresh set of eyes, and so I took a really big jump. I went from I ran like a four thirty marathon in October of that year. It was really hot, um, so it's kind of skewed on the number, but not a good race to a three forty nine in four months. Hmm. And that, and it was the first race in several years that I had not walked one step the entire race. And that kind of inside of me, I was like, hey, that was only four months. Like, I really should go for this. And so the following October, I ran a 336, uh, which was a new PR. And then. Ran a 3.32 last year at Houston and then hoping to run under 3.20 this year at Houston. So kind of I've the last couple of years have seen more consistency from me, more commitment, more commitment to my diet, which is where you've been so helpful. And, um, you know, I was always, quote, healthy and I think uh, the, it's easy as a runner and you're crossfitters I think there's so many similarities I think it's easy to think you're healthy because you exercise but as every good trainer will tell you often you can't out exercise a bad diet mm-hmm. and so I think I was healthy I could run far and I could run moderately fast but I would get sick often and um, and like just didn't always feel great and i actually in some ways i don't even know what it felt like to feel good because i was eating so junky and my running was keeping me from getting overweight but i wasn't fit by mm-hmm. what i understand now to to be fit and so even between that 349 to now i've probably lost almost 20 pounds and again i wasn't was never overweight it was probably always average size but i had no idea how much that extra weight was slowing me down for running and and that i mean like i don't get sick now i mean i can't even remember the last time i got sick or if if i start to get something it typically will be 12 hours or 24 hours um, and I know there's a lot of reasons people get
1: So talk sick, a little right. bit about that because there might be runners or people that work out that are kind of like, man, I feel a lot like you're describing or yeah. what changes, what were some of the big changes that you made in your diet?
0: I mean, I think the, look for better or worse, none of this is rocket science right? And I think that we want it to be complex and, and God bless all of the the people out there hustling different products and stuff and I know you know that that's kind of a a big thing right now but like there's no magic bullet there's no pill no shake no trainer no book no internet program that makes you be fit what makes you be fit and what makes you be healthy is waking up every day and making the decision to be fit and to be healthy and you might find a certain trainer or book or internet program or shake. It's a part of your fitness journey, but it's a, it's a deceptive marketing tool to think that any of those things by themselves is going is to gonna make you fit. So I think for me, the big change is, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm admitting up front, listener, nothing I'm going to say is something you haven't heard before. I'm going to validate what you've heard many times before a lot of it was just cutting the junk out of my out and of my diet. I
1: got to go back to your book, your P persistent. Yeah, you were you were great. actually cuz you know, I'll I'll bring up the body fat pinches that we did yeah. and dropping about 10% body fat. I'll kind of look up here and and give the exact numbers, but you know, your weight didn't change, right? Drastically. I mean, you you know, you lost you went from 170 to 159, which is 11 pounds, um But man, we were at 18, you were at 18.6% body fat at 170. And then before that trip with Stacy, you got down to 9% at actually 154 pounds Mm -hmm. in the course of six months. And you talk about being goal-oriented. I remember you coming in and we did pinches every month and you just really were kind of eager to see the results. You obviously could feel a difference. Right. But that from what I understand, it's probably just eliminating the junk.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's eating real food. I mean, it's the, you can call it, call it whatever you want. Primal paleo. Uh, I I tell you what it's not, it's not eating high sodium prepackaged food that gets shipped to your door. That's for sure. That might help you lose weight, but you're not going to be healthy. So I think it's, um, you know, the, what I like, and I like to explain to my kids, I don't like to talk about weight in front of my kids, obviously. Um, and even when they get on the scale to this day, um, the question is, how strong are you? And then they say, I'm 47. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that is super strong because I don't oh, want there to be awesome. any unhealthy kind of understanding of, around weight. But, but we even with my kids, we'll have the conversation where when they'll ask, you know, we'll say, we're not going to eat that. You know, that's not. It's not something that's really great for us. And, and my kids will now say, um, oh, that didn't come. God didn't make that. Like people made that in a factory. God didn't make that. And so it's really that simple. I mean, is this something that <laughs> came from the earth that we have been intended to eat for thousands of years? And that would be fruits, at least minimum fruits and vegetables and some 100% whole grain Um stuff and and then some meat you know and I know there's a lot of debate. certainly a lot of the ways we eat meat now um, probably doesn't honor animals and I think everybody needs to go on that own their own ethical journey. I actually went through a season about a decade ago where I was a vegetarian for about four years mostly for ethical sort of reasons. and so I, I do think that's important for us to acknowledge some of the factory farming is not meat in the form that probably it should be, but nonetheless, Meat came from the Lord, and um, vegetables and fruits and stuff that's 100% whole grain, kind of in its uninterrupted state. You really it would be almost impossible to not be healthy if we stuck to those things. And the the challenge is that we don't crave those things because they're not filled with the things that make us (laughs) crave them. You know, but anybody who's done Whole 30 or anything similar realizes how after a week how ridiculously sweet and orange tastes to you after eating no sugar for a week and it's almost like it almost feels like too much like you eat some sugar uh, an orange and you're like whoa i need to like take a break and i it just it shows you how skewed we are that we can eat chocolate and candy And i love 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 sweets if i had to trade the rest of my life no bread or no sweets I would never eat a piece of bread again the rest of my life like you can have your rolls you can have your hamburger buns I want my ice cream and I want my cookies you but, know
1: I gotta bring up if anybody ever I mean anybody who's friends with you on social media knows yeah. your blue bell forever oh, yeah, review yeah, 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 yeah. most likes on facebook i've ever seen yeah. a normal person like you know outside <laughs> yeah, of like right, a fan page right, right, right. or something get with that cookie two-step oh, and alicia delicious. just told me like two it's days back, ago they're bringing back. back
0: i know i have not let stacy buy any yet <laughs> I'm, I'm committed to the task at hand right now but but i love sweets and so what i've done was uh you know it's, it's not denying yourself anything, but it's everything in moderation. And so, for me, I do have a sweet tooth. And even when I lost the weight and, and really dropped the body fat, I still had a square of chocolate probably almost every single night. And I would suck on a jelly bean or a gummy bear. But instead of grabbing a handful of gummy bears, I would take a gummy bear and suck on it or chew a piece of gum. Mm-hmm. And it would and I was fine. Move on to the next thing. And so, you know, it's, it's really, if, if someone's listening and they're sort of wanting to, to take that next step in their, um, physical journey, fitness journey, it's really, again, I I think sometimes it's bad news for people to hear because they want it to be quicker. But I also think it's good news that like, you don't need to scour the internet for the right, um, diet or for the right sort of program uh, eat food that comes from the earth eat eat fruits and vegetables and if you need to dip your vegetables in something because you don't like raw vegetables dip it in something that comes from the earth like hummus it's chickpea mm-hmm. or uh, guacamole that's you know made with with avocados and eat fruit and vegetables and meat and i think uh, 99% of the population would shed fat if they almost every meal they ate um, fruits and vegetables, and and, and lean meat, and tomatoes. so right now, going
1: going towards your three hundred and twenty goal, yeah. nutrition is kind of a big thing. Yeah, right? it's huge. Yeah,
0: every pound, every extra pound of fat you're carrying is multiple seconds of of you know slowing you down, and more importantly than the weight. I'm probably at a. I'm about one hundred and fifty eight right now, so I'm probably at a, a healthy weight that I could definitely run my. Goal, but the bigger thing is, I'm putting a lot of training stress on my body right now. I mean, I'm running 50 miles a week in the summer. In the heat up. I mean, it's you know, when I leave in the morning at 5:30, it's 76, 77 degrees and 90% humidity, and I'll go do eight or ten miles on a weekday. And if I'm not eating good food, uh, if I'm not drinking. Hundred ounces of water. If I'm not getting seven or eight hours of sleep, my body's going to break down. I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get sick. And so, it's more about that fueling, thinking of food as fuel right now, than it is thinking of food as a way to lose weight. And and I'll even monitor my calorie intake to make sure I'm getting enough calories um, and the right kind of calories. Now, even if I'm in maintenance mode. I want to make sure when I look back at my daily log of food, like, oh, somehow I only ate two servings of fruits and vegetables. So, yeah, even though I hit my sort of calorie goal for the day, I didn't really eat good stuff. And so I think anyone who's trying to be moderately serious about their fitness should have some understanding of what it is they're putting in their putting in their body
1: and I'm sure it becomes a journey in, in the nutrition part too of learning what fuels you Absolutely. better on yeah. certain you know whatever tasks you're asking yeah. of your body running CrossFit yeah. um, at fitness activity so I got two more questions um, so the title of the podcast is building better people yeah. you know those three words Chris is kind of what um, I would say about four years ago became the purpose of this gym mm-hmm. in other words it finally uh, summed up our reason for what we do, which we help people become better versions of themselves because we believe that if you're working out, whether it's running or CrossFit or anything that you choose to do to get your heart rate up and exercise, you're going to become a better version of you. And so how's that true for you? You mentioned a little bit of that with your thin space and running. And um, how could you summarize that?
0: Yeah, I love. By the way, uh, one of my sort of motivational catchphrases is being the best version of yourself. And I think what I love about that is, I don't. I don't need to be Charlie Lima, and Charlie Lima doesn't need to be Chris Field. And and sometimes we will try to do that because I'll want to be more buff like you, or you'll say, oh, I want to run fast like Chris. Um, but but that's not who. Charlie was made to be and running doesn't do the same thing for you as it does for me and weightlifting doesn't do the same thing for me as we've talked about as it does for you. The Weights for me are very functional I don't enjoy weightlifting um, the way I enjoy running and so I think there's seasons where all of us try to become something that we're not and I think that's unhealthy I think the path, the journey should be exactly what you said. I want to become the best version of myself and God made me in certain ways, and innate in that is some gifts, innate in that is some weaknesses, and the, the life goal is to embrace those gifts, um, to receive them with open hands, to be honest and vulnerable about my weaknesses um, so that I can shore those up and minimize the hurt that they cause myself or other people. And, and then you begin to become the best version of yourself, I think, when you can start to do those two things. So, again, I was a little verbose there, embracing your gifts and being honest and vulnerable, vulnerable about your weaknesses. Um, and I think, you know, for me, with fitness and building the, the best version of myself, I think it, it gets at I'm so goal-oriented that fitness gives me an outlet um, to win if you will and then I don't have to win in ways that aren't healthy so I don't have to win by having the biggest house I don't have to win by making the most money I don't have to win by having the best body I don't have to win by um, think you know per, per, uh, sort of giving the perception that I'm the best dad or the best husband uh, I know myself enough to know that wins matter to me and that that competitive nature has been there since I was a Young boy, instead of trying to reject that, I get my wins every day when I wake up at 5:30, and every day when I finish a good run, and now I don't have to beat everyone. I don't because I I beat this. I beat my alarm clock, and I beat getting my butt out the door, and I beat the six miles and the heat and humidity. And now I can spend the rest of my day embracing my gifts and not having to have any sort of cutthroat um, mentality of of beating.
1: I I absolutely love that, man. I've never thought of it that way, but it's such a powerful statement just to even uh, say that because I think there's people who could totally relate to what you just said. So lastly, I want to talk about your book because it's coming out soon. Um, you mentioned it to our staff when you spoke to them. Yeah. So give me a little bit of you know give me obviously the name. I think it's disruptor or yeah, Disrupt-
0: disrupting for good.
1: And when should it be out?
0: I think March so it's a little I'm, I'm with a publisher and there's um, they kind of control the the timeline but uh, it, but basically the the book I, I, two years ago someone sent me an email, a buddy of mine, and they said uh, they saw this program at a college, I think it was at the USC in California, and, and it was a program about disruption, uh, like a bachelor's, like a, or maybe a minor in disruption, and they basically said, I saw this and it made me think of you, and I sort of read it, and I thought, oh, you know, I've never thought of myself as a disruptor, like, that terminology has never been given to me, but I'm a deep believer in words mattering, and I was a preacher, and, um, that one of the phrases that I always remember, and I say this to people all the time, and I've said it on Facebook, you've probably seen me say it, but it was a quote one of my preaching professors told us, and it was that words create worlds. So we either uh, destruct create destructive worlds with our words, or we build better, beautiful worlds with our words, and that words really matter. And so this person said this to me, and all of a sudden it was like a light kind of came on in me that so much of my life, we didn't even get into, of course, some of the running for mayor of College Station when I was 19 and some of those other things. All of a sudden it was like I had a name for all these things I had done. Like, oh, I'm a disruptor. Like, I'm a disruptor. It's like I was looking in a mirror for the first time and seeing a version of myself that... I've never been able to put my finger on it. And so I really embraced that word. And then all of a sudden, um, as I thought through that over the next few months, I thought, well, there's got to be a way, sort of one of my passions is getting other people to disrupt and to embrace. Because I don't think there's anything unusual about me. I mean, I graduated literally middle of my class in high school, no college scholarships, like just as average as you could be. And so when people say things to me sometimes, it's a little uncomfortable they put me on a pedestal and I always wanna say, I'm just a dude who chooses to do hard things or who chooses to take the road less traveled or chooses to engage a problem that I think shouldn't exist. But everyone has that same capacity, every single person in the world. And so finally I had a name for it. Everyone has the opportunity to disrupt and to disrupt for good and so the and there's that's a double play right one disrupting for good to disrupt for positive and two to disrupt forever lasting change that takes root and so uh, that sort of message of positivity and sustainability has been at the core of Mercy Project certainly and at the core of a lot of my life and so the book I, I, I did all this research and I found I think there's 12 stories that I tell um, about these people uh like a young boy who uh, met a, a young girl. He was 14, he met a, a young girl at a conference that had a prosthetic arm. And she told him that the prosthetic arm had cost like $70,000 for her family. And he, he's 14 from a small town in Colorado. He's graduating class, had like 20 kids. He's, he says, there's gotta be a better way. So he, he takes Legos and fishing wire and over the next several years creates uh, a prosthetic arm Um, That could be. He makes it open source, where you can uh, print it on a 3D printer for $300. Skips college. uh, NASA hires him uh, as an intern because they're making a robot to go to space, and they want him to be doing the arms on the robot. But here's just a kid who is literally an hour from the closest radio shack, who just decides prosthetic arms should not cost $70,000. There's got to be a better way. Or uh, the guy who went to, the, he was working in prison, in prisons, and he hated that prisons uh, aren't uh, really about rehabilitation, they're about punishment. And so he thought one of the ways that he could teach prisoners to think more deeply and to have more confidence is to teach them to debate. And so he took a debate team uh, from this prison and they went and debated um, a team from Harvard and they beat the Harvard College debate team and this debate that nobody got to watch because the guys were in prison. Um, but there's just all these stories, just story after story after story of these people. One of them that deals more with fitness is a woman who weighed about 300 pounds, who with no surgery, no trainer, lost about 150 pounds, uh, just started walking uh, during her lunch break, started walking the stairs, and she watched videos on her VCR uh, in the late 90s um, to, to work out and just started eating good food because she kind of had a, a epiphany moment where she wanted to be able to chase her grandkids. And so all of these people were disruptive, some of them in ways that only affected them personally and most of them in ways that will impact the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And then at the end, when I think everyone is feeling pretty pumped up about these stories. It's a quick read, two and a half hours probably for the average reader. It it turns the spotlight around and says, okay, Charlie, now it's your turn. What do you need to disrupt? And what did we learn about these people that you can now apply to to your own life? And then I walk through that map of disruption to say, here's how you start thinking about something that makes you uncomfortable. Here's how you make a commitment. Here's how you make an action plan. Here's what it looks like to persist. And then I end the book with sort of ten common objections to disruption. I don't have enough money, or uh, you know, I, I never went to college, or I'm not, old. I'm too old. My youngest disruptor is five years old. My oldest disruptor is 80 years old. A little lady in LA uh, who taught public school for years, um, and uh, and then. Opened up her own home, uh, an 800 square foot house in Los Angeles. Opened up her own home to kids after school to teach a after school program. Mama Hill is what they call <laughs> it. and um, and so I, I debunk the age thing and the money thing and the, I mean all those things at the core. Those are excuses manifested from fear. Like that's it. That I mean. The last thing I'll say, uh, and I've said this before, but it's one of my most impactful um, phrases in my life, and other people have told me it's really meaningful to them. And I've told people before, my life was changed forever uh, when my desire to achieve great things, to live out my best gifts, outgrew my fear of failure. And I think for so many of us, We long to be better versions of ourselves, but the fear of failing keeps us from doing that because what if I go to CrossFit and I can't keep up with the other people, or what if I go there and, um, you know, I'm not able to to achieve, or what if I try to run a marathon and I can't do it, or, um, you know, what if I try to lose weight, I'm not able to have the self-control to stop eating ice cream or whatever. And that fear of failure just manifests itself in excuses. And when we can outgrow, when, when our desire to be the best version of ourselves outgrows that fear of failure, there's literally no limit to the, to the amount of things that we can achieve. It's a matter. At this point in my life, I have to choose what I have time to do and not, oh, I wonder if I can find a good thing to do. There's a million Good ways for us to, to use our best gifts to bless the world, um, and when you get confident enough in your gifts, and you're not scared of fa- and I still fail, by the way, um, Constant. I fail. You know, my last year, I I set a really audacious marathon goal, and I failed miserably at hitting it. So failure's still there, but I'm not scared of failing anymore. And failure is not my name. I don't get my, my name doesn't come from failing and I'm the same person before I fail as I am after. And, and I, you know, I need to be reminded of that. And I ask people in my life to remind me of that when I try hard things. And failure doesn't define us. So I think, um, I hope that's something that will feel meaningful to, to people is to, to ask themselves honestly, does my desire to use my best gifts Is that outweigh my fear of failure? Because most of us, the answer is no. That fear of failure
1: is the heavier weight on the scale of life. Thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Building Better People podcast, where you will hear more stories of individuals being positively impacted by living a healthy lifestyle.